All right, I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8. I'm sure everybody here knows that page 5 of your worship guide, uh, there is um, a little spot to take notes. So uh, we definitely want to encourage you to stay fully engaged and attentive uh, when we we go through the sermon passage. So uh, this is one way to stay engaged, is to take notes on this or doodle on this and follow along using that as a resource. Um, we stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to do that now. And I'll remind you, you're standing just uh, not, not as a way of earning any extra credit with God. Uh, we, don't, we don't stand because uh, the Bible says you have to. Um, but we do that just because we want to do kind of whatever we can to be fully attentive to the active and living word of God, which is what this is. So put your full attention. Timothy and Paul write, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray for pursuing us. You certainly didn't have to pursue us, but you say you wanted to. Uh, you say that you decided that we would be your treasure, your heritage. And so, like all of us, when we have something, we tread out of the cost. And uh, you have paid dearly for us. You have shed the blood of your own son, Jesus in order to procure us and to have us as your treasured possession. And I pray that we would be in awe of this amazing grace, uh, that we would be reminded and completely dominated and defined uh, by this mercy, this grace that we have in Christ alone, uh, that we would be impacted by the love of Jesus as we reflect on that love here from this passage uh, and that it would shape everything about the way we live, all our decisions, it would shape our thoughts, it would shape our words and our actions. And we ask that you would do that good work in us in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so everybody here is most likely, I'm assuming, familiar with South End here in Charlotte, South End, it's, this is a happening place. It's a trendy place. Lots of new homes, lots of cool renovations going on, really cool breweries all over South End, chic restaurants, really trendy restaurants. The uh, Confetti Hearts wall, you remember the wall? Uh, if you're like an Instagram person or you have to go down to the, the Confetti Hearts wall. The light rail uh, runs through South End. There's an indoor putt-putt golf course there. There's an adult arcade. There's a climbing gym. There's all kinds of really cool stuff in South End. So imagine you're meandering around South End, and uh, as you're walking around, somebody comes up to you, and they say, hey, what's so great about Christianity? 
I don't know, maybe they can tell by looking. They think you're a Christian or somebody who professes to love Jesus. And they say, tell me about Jesus. Sell me on Jesus. And uh, I think, for being honest, um, we're, we're walking around this really trendy place south and we're wondering, you know, can Jesus compete with a place like this? I mean, based on what we all instinctively value, I mean, what benefits would I enumerate for this person? What selling points would I be sure to mention when talking to this person? Well, Paul and Timothy help us out here. We get a good sense of what, at a minimum, Paul and Timothy would emphasize if they were asked that question based on what they, they very enthusiastically write about and commend here at the beginning of the letter to the church in Colossae. They say in verse 3 and 4, we are always thankful. That's a, that's a big statement. We are always full of gratitude and we are always thankful to God for what? Well, first and foremost, for the faith of the people in Colossae. Now, what is faith? Uh, the Bible does us a huge favor. It actually defines what faith is. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the certainty or conviction of things not seen. So the first thing we got to talk about when we, when we offer people the, the benefits of the gospel, the, the truth of God's word, is we've, we got, we've got to talk about things not seen, things hoped for, things we don't have in the, in the most full and final version presently, things that are invisible. And believe it or not, this is a major Selling point. This is a major point of emphasis for the church. Uh, so first and foremost, Jesus, the founder of the church, our, our head, our king, our leader, uh, he was very, very enthusiastic and excited about faith. You can read about this in the Gospels, Luke chapter 7, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, Jesus marvels at faith. There's this story of this Roman soldier, and he's got this servant who's sick, at the point of death, and he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, I understand how commands work, how, how rank and giving orders work. And he says, if you just utter the words, just give the command, you don't even need to come to my house. I believe that your command is authoritative and powerful enough to heal my servant. Just say the word. And Jesus marvels at this man's faith. Think about that. Jesus is God. What, what would it take to impress God? To get God to marvel? Well, the, the gospels say it's faith. That's what he finds marvelous. Jesus is all about faith. He's all about it. Shows up all over the gospels. He's always commending people for faith. He forces us to live by faith. Jesus is like the dad in the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know how he's always forcing like being Greek on everybody? He's saying to him, give me any word. And I tell you, the root of that word is Greek. Right? Everything has to be about being Greek. Or, or maybe it's his, his home remedy of Windex, right? Whatever's ailing you, he just sprays you with Windex, whether you want him to or not. That's what Jesus is. That's the way Jesus is about faith. He just forces faith on you. See, faith, faith is amazing. We should all live by faith. It's so, so marvelous. Also, we need to notice that Jesus, he's the head of our family, He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the king, not just of the church. He's the king of kings, all prime of everyone. He's our husband. 
He's the eternal word of God. So even if you're not a Christian, everything you value, everything you think is important, he is upholding that thing by, by his word. He is the truth. He is the absolute exclusive truth. He is the way. He is the life. He's, he's important. Jesus is very, very, very important. So let's ask this question. Can we at least see him? Some, someone this important, we should at least be able to lay eyes on him. The Bible says no. Not right now. I mean, he was, he was here in the flesh. The fullness of God was here with us for approximately 30-ish years. And then he ascended into heaven and he is presently not physically with us. He's going to come back. You'll see him one day. But at present, God in his infinite wisdom says, no, you're not going to see him. This is what it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. By the power of the spirit, you are compelled to love this husband, this king of your life that you've never seen. Peter says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Y'all, the epicenter of our existence and our enjoyment is invisible. Jesus, he's not seen right now. So, so this is a selling point. This is a, this is a point of emphasis in scripture, a benefit that we get to live by faith. And the Bible goes on to say the most, the most celebrated and commendable choices of our lives are the, are the decisions we make by faith. Those are the most commendable choices we make, the choices driven by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, for example, tells the story of Moses. It says, you know, Moses, he made this decision, this very pivotal decision in his life. He refused the, the life of luxury and comfort and, and abundance and convenience. He, he refused the royal status of the palace life in Egypt. Do you realize this? Moses, he was raised in the palace of Egypt. And he could have clung to that life of status, royal status and luxury and comfort. But he made the decision to instead be with the people of God. To serve them to suffer with them and be mistreated with them. And the Bible doesn't just point that out as a fact. It says, no, this is a selling point. This is what we are commending. This is what is celebrated. This is what we promote and push people to do. This is a benefit. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Moses left the comforts and luxuries of palace life in Egypt. And he endured with the people of God by seeing him who is invisible. Now, we need to camp out on that word endured for a moment. Really sink into what does that word mean? Because the greatest by faith stuff, according to scripture, isn't temporary stuff. It's very long-term stuff. It's it's not non-committal, it's very deeply committed. It's long-haul investment kind of stuff. And that's the second big benefit that we offer people when we talk about Jesus and being part of the church and Christianity. We talk about the deep commitment of being a follower of Jesus. The deep investment of, of being a follower of Jesus. So in verse 4, Timothy and Paul, they get excited about this deep investment this commitment that they see on display in the lives of, of the followers of Christ in Colossae. They say, we heard of the love 
flowing from your faith, born out of the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven, the love that you have for all the saints. Y'all, we, we need to be clear. We're not talking about surfacy cocktail party, merely cordial interactions with other people. We're talking about familial love, tenacious love, loving even when people aren't acting so lovely kind of love, actually loving real people. Again, using that, that reference to Moses, do you realize by, by making his decision to leave Egypt, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, Moses, he put himself in an irrevocable position to love God's people for the long haul. And if you're familiar with Moses' story, I mean, this was a very long-suffering kind of love. Very, very long-suffering. And we all instinctively know there's something amazing about that deep, long-haul, long-suffering kind of love. So I know this is true for me, probably true for many of you. You've been to weddings, to wedding receptions specifically. And there comes this point at many re wedding receptions where the DJ, he will say, okay, now everybody who's been married for five years or more, stand up. And, you know, a bunch of people stand up and there's, there's sort of obligatory applause. And then uh, he goes on. He says, okay, 10 years or more. And he just keeps going, 20 years or more, 30 years or more, 40 years or more. And then he gets like 50 years and there's like a couple of elderly folks standing who've been married more than 50 years. And, and all of the obligatory applause vanishes and, and people get genuinely worked up and excited because we all instinctively know this is what is most marvelous. This is the real good stuff of life. This deep, long-haul long-suffering kind of commitment and investment. That's what's really impressive. And we all know it's impressive because of the tenacity, the endurance, the, the commitment. And that's what's on display in, in, a, in the life and the story of, of a guy like Moses, right? This guy who lived by faith. That's what Paul and Timothy are so excited about. That's what they're commending in the lives of the people in Colossae. You know, in the days of Moses, let me just remind you, you know, God delivered the Israelites in the days of Moses from slavery, but he didn't just deliver them from slavery. I mean, he did it in the most dominant fashion. They didn't just leave Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians. They walked out of Egypt with all of this wealth, all of these resources. The Egyptians were just loading up wagons full of their wealth and giving it to the Israelites as they were leaving the land of Egypt. And God supernaturally provided for his people in those wilderness days. He, he provided ongoing security, provided ongoing guidance and food and rules and regulations. And you remember what happened in response to that. God's people complained. And they, they grumbled against God. They accused God of being abusive. They accused God of attempting to murder them. They said, why did you bring us out here? to the wilderness. I bet it was to try to kill us. They started romanticizing their oppressors, the Egyptians. They started saying, oh, it would be better for us to go back to slavery, as if that was actually better. And they grumbled against Moses. They chronically complained against Moses. And what is marvelous, the reason, honestly, that the reason God fundamentally tells us all of that is because Moses kept loving them. Even in light of their horrible attitude, their, their complete lack of gratitude, he continued to love them. 
And God is saying that is what is most marvelous. Because the love of God, as as it was experienced by Moses and stewarded by Moses, you see, that's the kind of love, according to scripture, that covers a multitude of sins. And it is so, so impressive. You know, when my kids say, there's nothing to do. And I think, God, we have a trampoline. We have a basketball goal. We got a lake out in front of our house. There's a canoe. We got a puppy. We got a cat. We got all kinds of stuff. We got books, puzzles, games, all these things. And they say, there's nothing to do. Or they go into the pantry and say, I can't find anything to eat. And there's nothing to eat. It's never been true. There's like a can of beans in there at least. Or, you know, probably some Cheez-Its and stuff. But, oh, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to eat. All right, grumble. I got to admit, my love inclination in those moments is low. <laughs> really, really low. My, my anger and my tendency to bark at my children is very high. But God would say, you know, that's the story of me and my people. And, and that's where the real opportunity to love is. And and God just tells us story after story after story of his amazing love. He says, this is where you need to focus your attention on my amazing, staggering love for my people. And there's there's all kinds of evidence that God's people aren't that lovely. They don't act very lovable. And yet God keeps loving them. Another way to say it is, easy, like convenient, effortless love, that's not really impressive. We all know that. Like if I go on vacation and I go to the airport and I go to the, the TSA line, I go through pre-check and it's just smooth sailing. And then I get to, I get to my, my gate and they call me up to the counter and they say, Mr. Dirks, we're upgrading you to first class. And uh, they, they fly me to this resort in some tropical location. And during the week that I'm there, I go snorkeling. And I find an oyster with a pearl inside worth $80 million. And, uh, you know, there's filet mignon for dinner every night. And I say, oh, I love it. You, you want to boo me? Boo. What? Of course you love it. That's easy. We are not impressed. You get no credit for loving the bougie life. The easy life of luxury. You get no credit. We don't don't see anything in scripture about uh, God celebrating and commending those people who have have it easy and and comfortable lives of luxury. But but here's the deal. We're we're all pursuing those lives, right? We, We all naturally want to commend those lives, at least to ourselves. And honestly, what we scroll and what we look at and what we fantasize about, it's all it's all oriented and orbiting around that kind of pursuit. But God comes along and he says, no, you're missing it. You, you don't understand real, real marvelous stuff. You don't understand the true benefits of what's most true and most impressive. It's this, it's this life of faith and this commitment of love. See, loving when it's hard to love, that's where, that's where the real valuable stuff of life occurs. And so let me say very practically, that's what's really great about the church. You know, if you had to sell someone on on why is it great to be a Christian? Why is it great to be a member of the body of Christ? Well, fundamentally, your answer should be because that's where the sinners are. That's where the multitude of sins are. Right? Because Jesus didn't come to help basically decent people. He came to help sinners. So he's calling a bunch of sinners to himself. 
And there's a multitude of sins here. And the amazing, most impressive sales point for us as Christians is this is where we get fundamentally the opportunity to love like Jesus has loved us. This is where we get to love like the Bible talks about love. That's the opportunity. That's the offer of being a follower of Christ, a member of the church. We get to love, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we get to love in a way that's patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. It's not resentful. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And y'all, we really... This is so important. We really need to pause and reflect on how we've received that kind of love. Because it is so true that you, you won't just get out there and love like that. You have to first be loved like that. You, you have to sink down deep into how you have been loved by Jesus like this. And through the power of the Spirit, you've been loved by other people. Followers of Jesus, people have loved you like this. And because you've been loved so much, like this, this, this love that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love that is not irritable, love that is not insisting on its own way, because you have been impacted by that, that is how you will then go and love other people like that. That's where the real impact occurs. And y'all, we, we're all about impact. In this world, we all want to make impact, right? Right? Like we want to know that what I'm doing it's having an effect. It's bearing some kind of fruit. It's making impact. And this passage really, in quite a startling way, emphasizes this theme of impact. We see the language of impact in verse 5 and following. Look there again. It says, the gospel has come to you, you people in Colossae. And this is such an audacious, superlative thing to say. It says, indeed, in the whole world, the gospel has made impact. It's bearing fruit and it's expanding. It's increasing. Now, what kind of impact, what kind of expansion and increasing fruitfulness is Paul referencing? Well, he's probably talking about the kind of impact and increasing expansion that Jesus talked about in his parables where he said, okay, the kingdom of God, it's growing, it's expanding, but it's unseen. It's like leaven that, that's put into dough, and you, you don't really see it, but slowly you, you see the effects of it. It's, it's invisible to you, though. It's, it's not the kind of expansion or impact that you would have necessarily assumed. And, and what kind of impact has the gospel made on Paul's life personally? I mean, Paul and Timothy are writing this letter, so, so let's ask that question. How has Paul experienced the impact of this kind of love. Well, first of all, we got to go back to Acts chapter 9 where Paul first was impacted by Jesus, right? Saul's backstory is that he's, he's a murderer of Christians. He hates Jesus. He's, he's the antagonist of the church. And he's trying, to, he's trying to arrest people who love Jesus and he's trying to kill people who love Jesus. And nevertheless, Jesus comes to Paul and he says, I, I want to save you from yourself. I want to seek you out, not to condemn you, not to punish you, but to prevail in your life with my love. And then in a very personal way, you see that 
Paul received this this otherworldly, hope-filled love from a guy named Ananias. Right? It wasn't, the, it wasn't just that Jesus interrupted Paul's life on the road to Damascus. Once he gets to Damascus, God sends this guy named Ananias. And Ananias, just like you and I, when God tells him you need to go talk to this guy, Paul, um, Ananias says, well, let's talk about that. Uh, I've heard rumors, reports of this guy, Saul, Paul, and I got to say, I'm kind of uncomfortable uh, with the idea of going to talk to him because He's been so, uh, I don't think it's a good idea. And uh, God said, well, I, I hear your concerns, but you got to go. You got to go tell him that uh, what I told him on the road is true. You know, you got to confirm that. And, and you got to sort of further substantiate the fact that I'm, I'm really making impact in, in your life and in his life. And so you need to go and you need to tell him about my love and my forgiveness. And so... In a very personal way, Paul would have had this experience where this guy, who, who was instinctively afraid of him, and for good reason, this guy Ananias comes to Paul, and he, he says, brother. He says, brother, brother Saul, I've come to tell you that the love of Jesus is legit. It's real. It's not just a concept. It's, it's a real thing. <laughs> And, and realize this, there's no, there's no historic fruit or evidence in Saul's life that would compel Ananias to go to him and call him brother, right? For, for Ananias to call Saul brother at this particular moment in time, that is entirely predicated on the hope-filled love of the gospel. It has nothing to do with who Paul has been. It has everything to do with who Paul will become because of the hope and the promise of the gospel. And honestly, that's what, that's what real love requires of us so often. It, it, it's not about whether or not you've earned my love or if I've earned your love. It, it's you're loving me because of who God says I am in Christ. You're loving people who are, yes, they're acting unlovely and unlovable so often. But you're going to love them nevertheless because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. Because of who we are in Christ and who, will we, who we will become in the fullness of time, in the glory of heaven. That's why you're going to love people like Jesus. Not necessarily because of uh, their, their, their unloveliness here and now. No, that's not going to be the reason. It's going to be because of who Jesus says they are and who he's conforming them and transforming them to be. Secondly, you need to understand that when Paul talks about the impact of the gospel in his life, he talks about it like this. This is from Philippians 3. He says, before Jesus came into my life, I had all kinds of confidence in my flesh. He said, I had a stellar resume. I had a, an elite education. I had pedigree. I had status. But then Jesus came into my life. And Paul says, whatever gain I had, whatever confidence in my flesh that I had, I count it all as loss for the sake of Jesus. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For the sake of Jesus, I suffer the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. In comparison with knowing Jesus, all of the things that I used to boast about and be so enamored with, 
I count those things as loss, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ. Paul says, this is my obsession. I long to know Jesus. I long to follow him into death, through death, so that I might know the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death. That is such an extreme way to talk. But Paul is so serious when he talks that way. He's seriously promoting this. This is his selling point. He's saying, I am selling and promoting this brand of Christianity, the Jesus brand of Christianity. Jesus sums it up like this. He says, you know, if you're going to come follow me, you need to understand that who would ever be great in my kingdom, they must become the servant of all. Whoever would be first in my kingdom, they must become the slave of all. That's Jesus' sales pitch. Can you imagine? Can you imagine telling people that's what we're offering? Why should I become a Christian? Why should I follow Jesus? Well, you don't need to make up some flashy sales pitch. Just quote Jesus. Well, if you want to follow Jesus, you get to be the servant of all. You get to be the slave of all. You you get to share in Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. And in this way, you get to know Jesus. Not just know about him, but really have fellowship, rich experiential fellowship with him. And that was Paul's experience. This isn't just talk for Paul. Paul is writing this letter from prison. Why is he in prison? Because he loves Jesus. And people aren't thrilled with that. People are kind of upset with Paul oftentimes because of his zeal and his love for Jesus and the kingdom of Christ. And so he's in prison. And Paul references guys like Epaphras. You know, Epaphras was also a former prisoner. Paul mentions that in his letter to Philemon. He says, this fellow prisoner, this friend of mine, Epaphras. And here Epaphras is given a title. What's his title? Servant. And and God says, that's what I'm offering. That's what I am extending to you as, as the benefit of following Jesus. It's what the gospel is all about. That's what's so great about the gospel. And we're going to come to this meal in a minute, and we need to understand that that's what this meal is offering us. The, the way of our Lord, the way of our King, of our leader, our shepherd, is the way of laying down your life. As, as Travis mentioned in the pastoral prayer, losing your life on your terms, in accordance with your agenda, in order that you might experience life with Christ, in Christ. Believe it or not, that's life to the fullest. That's what we get. It's it's not something we begrudgingly accept. It's something we, we accept and rejoice in and we believe it or not, God says, you get to come to this meal which is displaying for you the broken body and the shed blood of the only perfect man who ever lived. This man who suffered who cried out in in his moment of greatest darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God says, believe it or not, this is the way to eternal life. This is the way to life to the fullest, to follow this king, to, to take what he did and not just have some knowledge of it, but to get it inside you, to have it deeply impact you. That is how you will experience lasting joy and peace and life to the fullest. 
And Paul unashamedly offers this to anyone and everyone he comes in contact with. Paul unreservedly commends and celebrates the absolute truth and relevance of what this meal, the truth of Jesus, what it is proclaiming to us. You know, as I was thinking about that opening illustration, walking around a, a trendy place and being asked about, you know, why should I become a Christian? Like, what would, we, what would we say? How would we sell it? I realized, you know, Paul had an experience just like that. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the city of Athens. It's a very happening place, very trendy place. And specifically, he's at the Acropolis. So this is where, I mean, this is the south end of Athens. This is where all the important stuff happens. This is where all the breweries are and putt-putt golf courses. And and he's there in the Acropolis at the Areopagus. And to be fair, a number of people, they listen to Paul talking about Jesus. And they say, this guy's a babbler. What is this babbler talking about? He's bringing some really crazy sounding, strange nonsense to our ears. And some people mocked him. But you realize that some people, even leading figures, like people who were on the board of directors of the Areopagus, at Mars Hill, people like Dionysius and Damaris, they believed. They, they heard what Paul was talking about. They, they saw the, the, the suffering, the service, the sacrifice of Jesus, and they said, that's what I've been missing. To be loved like that, to be pursued by God, not condemned, not punished, but pursued and redeemed by the blood of his son, that is, that is amazing that God would love me so much to sacrifice his only begotten son. And they were impacted. They believed it. And God says, that's the invitation. Right now, January 7th, 2024, that's what is being offered to all of us in this room right now. The staggering, supernatural love of God. God is saying, I want to invite you to come be impacted by the love of Jesus. I want it to get inside of you. I want it to transform your life. I want it to shape every decision you make in life. I want it to dominate you. That's why you're going to come and partake of it tangibly. Because you can't just read about it. You've got to come and you've got to get it inside of you. That's the invitation. And the Bible says, so you need to examine yourself. You need to ask yourself, do I really want to receive this love? I mean, this is a radical love. To receive the love of the God-man who gave his life for me? That seems pretty extreme. I mean, I would have to be pretty desperate. I'd have, I would have to admit a lot of depravity about myself to, to say that I require this in order to be in the presence of God. So, so you need to ask yourself, honestly, do I want to admit that about myself? And furthermore, you need to ask yourself, if I... If I take of this, if I partake of this, that means I'm going to start loving like this. That means that instead of being resentful and, and uh, snarky and bitter and irritable when people are acting unlovely and unlovable, if I get this inside of me, that means I'm going to start being patient with those people. I'm going to start being kind and gentle with those people. Do you want that? Do you want that to happen? Do you want to be the kind of person who loves like Jesus? And, and the Bible is very sincere when it says you have to examine yourself. If you don't really want that, if you're not hungry for that, the Bible says you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. But if you really want to be loved like this and you want to love like this, 
God very sincerely in the most celebratory way says, you need to come and get in on this meal. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this radical, amazing love. Uh, even the people who relentlessly studied your word, they, 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 they poured over all the prophecies of the Christ. Um, this was so radical, this, this mission of the God-man to come and lay down his life and be crucified and to, to shed his blood and have his body break for his enemies. This was so, so radical that even the people who studied it and looked into it, they, they still couldn't really wrap their minds around it. In fact, you, you told your disciples about it time and again and time again and time again, and they still didn't really understand it. Even when you rose from the dead, they were still confused because it's, it's such a mystery. It's so, so strange that God would love such unlovely, unlovable people like us and that you would be so radical and extreme and serious about giving, giving us the, the sacrifice of your son in order to secure us as your treasure for all eternity. But that's what we have. That's what you have given us in the gospel. And so we pray that you would cause us and compel us to believe it and always forever increase our appetite for it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.